we turn now to the time, the portion of our live stream when we will be looking at God's word together. We have begun a series in the New Testament Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we would have you open that up now to the New Testament book of Luke. And we are going to be thinking together about some verses from Luke chapter 9. As you're turning there, in terms of introduction, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was a movement in the evangelical church that came to be called the seeker-sensitive movement. This church movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, was in reaction to a perception that Christians were often unwelcoming to unbelievers and that the church needed to be more aware of, more attuned to the non-Christians around them and particularly the non-Christians who would be in the service. This seeker-sensitive church movement encouraged preachers to avoid articulating truths in Scripture that would be hard for non-Christians to hear. And in fact, the worship service itself was to be crafted with the non-Christian in view, crafted to attract the non-Christian to Christ. Now, this idea had good motivation behind it. As Christians... We don't want to be unwelcoming to those in need of Christ, do we? And wasn't Jesus himself constantly building bridges to the poor, to the needy, to the outcasts, and to the disenfranchised? Wasn't Jesus tearing down walls that divided in order to bring sinners to himself? Wasn't Jesus comfortable welcoming sinners and prostitutes, drunkards and tax collectors? Yes. He did all of these things, and we should too, as his people, we should be welcoming. But while Jesus was welcoming to any that would come to him and follow him, Jesus never soft-pedaled the truth. He never downplayed the hard parts of the gospel in order for the truth to be more easily swallowed. No, at times, Jesus put demands upon his followers that are hard. At times, Jesus put demands upon his followers that are so hard, they are breathtaking. In our passage this morning, Jesus speaks to seekers, but he's not sensitive. He addresses three would-be disciples, and instead of seeking to attract them with a presentation of the benefits of the gospel, he gives them instead the full extent of the gospel's demands, the full extent of his demands. And we see that rather than marketing the truth to be easily swallowed, Jesus demands nothing less than a wholehearted commitment to him. Jesus demands nothing less than a wholehearted commitment to him. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 9. And we're going to look at the last six verses of Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Last Sunday, we looked at the center of the book of Luke. After establishing who Jesus is through his teaching and his miracles, that Jesus is God's Messiah, Jesus now sets his face, it says in 951, he sets his face to Jerusalem. Jesus now begins the journey to Jerusalem where he would lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. 
And as one preacher put it, everything that happens from now on in this book, it happens under the shadow of the impending cross. Everything else that happens from here on in the book happens under the shadow of the impending cross. The cross is where Jesus is headed. And the cross is his purpose. And the cross colors all that he would say and do from here on out. We saw last week that while the 12 disciples are committed to him, even they have still not fully grasped Jesus' purpose. And so though Jesus tells them over and over that he will suffer and die, the disciples are in denial and they continue to run up against how different Jesus is from their expectations for him. Last week, we saw that they sought to divide where Jesus had come to unite. They sought vengeance while Jesus had come to show mercy, and Jesus lovingly corrects them. And while Jesus is not the Messiah the disciples expected, we saw last week, he is exactly the deliverer that the world needs. In our passage this morning now, Jesus has, has conversations with three potential disciples. And Jesus revisits the theme of counting the cost. Earlier in chapter 9, after making it clear that he is God's Messiah, the anointed one come from God, the anointed king, he tells his disciples that he is a Messiah who has come to suffer and to die, not to reign and to rule in this coming. And then turning to the crowds in verses 23 to 26, Jesus told them, if anyone would could come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And this call to count the cost, to take up our cross and follow him in our passage, uh, in our passage, the cost of following Jesus now gets specific. Rather than a general call to die, to follow Jesus, to suffering and death, the cost of following Jesus gets specific. And in our passage this morning, we see this, and this is our main point. The single-minded Christ demands wholehearted disciples. The single-minded Christ demands wholehearted disciples. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem with a single mind to save sinners, but he demands of his followers that we would be wholehearted in our discipleship. Our passage follows um, on this last section where the disciples were dividing instead of uniting, where they were bringing vengeance instead of mercy. But now Jesus has a conversation with three would-be disciples, and we'll have three points this morning. Jesus' disciples are to, one, count the cost, two, have gospel priorities, and three, have wholehearted commitment. One, count the cost. Two, gospel priorities. And three, wholehearted commitment. I pray that this morning we would hear Christ's demands. Count the cost and follow him as wholehearted disciples. Point number one, 
Point number one, counting the cost. Let's read the first part of the passage, Luke 9, 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Until this part of the gospel of Luke, Jesus has been the one calling people to follow him. And in each of those cases, people have left everything behind and they followed him, whether it was Peter and uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the fishermen in chapter four, leaving behind their nets, leaving behind their work and following Christ, or Levi, that is Matthew, leaving behind his tax booth. Those that Jesus called left everything behind and followed him. Now we have the first place in, in, in the gospels where Jesus is interacting with would-be disciples, and it looks like he's coming up against some division in people's hearts. They want to follow Christ, it looks like, to some extent, but they are in some way, each of them, divided in terms of their discipleship and in terms of their expectations. The first one gives a statement of wholehearted discipleship. This one is a volunteer. You see that in verse 57. They were going along the road and someone volunteers Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. How wonderful is that? It sounds like wholehearted commitment. But Jesus, who sees into the heart, warns this would-be disciple. It looks like he's promised more than he's actually able or willing to follow through on. Look at what Jesus says in verse 58. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying, if you want to follow me wherever I go, you need to know at the outset that I am leading you on a pilgrim path. I am leading you on the path of a sojourner and a stranger in this world. For Jesus, this world was not his home. And for those that follow him, this world will not be our home either. We've been studying in the book of First Peter in our midweek Bible study, something I'd uh, invite you to join us uh, on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on a, a Zoom call. We've been looking at First uh, Peter together. And Peter picks up on this as he teaches those churches in Asia Minor. He calls them exiles and strangers and sojourners meaning that we are like Christ passing through this world, which is not our home. We are outside of the nation that we are citizens of, the nation of heaven. And the world that we're in now is a world that we are not at home in and cannot seek to be at home in. And Jesus was never a homeowner when it came to this world. And he tells those that will follow him to not get so attached to this world that they seek to be at home here. You see here that Jesus isn't promising you to own your own home in this world. He isn't saying that you might not either. We see Christians in the New Testament, 
Christians in the letters who own homes and those that don't. We see Christians who have virtually nothing in this world and others who are quite well-to-do, but yet leverage the things that they have for the good of the kingdom. But either way, those that are to follow Christ are to have a loose grip on the things of this world. It appears that this man, perceiving that Jesus is the Messiah, expected Jesus to come into his kingdom and perhaps was looking for Jesus when he sat on his throne to be distributing gifts to his devoted followers. Jesus isn't promising any worldly gifts. Think of commercials, how often commercials hold out benefits and then quickly speed over the fine print or the dangerous side effects. Sometimes it's comical. You watch a commercial about some new pill that's going to help you and they hold out all of these wonderful benefits and then they very quickly speed over those dangerous side effects. By the way, these things might actually kill you. You know, Jesus isn't like those commercials, producing a commercial, holding out the benefits without letting you know the costs. No, Jesus tells people the costs right up front. He lets them know that following after him is going to cost you something when it comes to this world. And here he tells this would-be disciple, if you are going to follow me wherever you go, you must sign up for the pilgrim life. I think we often hear the cost, the call to follow Christ and to leave everything behind and think, well, I would at least be willing to do that if he asked it of me. But then often we then slide into this comfort zone where we think, well, I don't think Jesus is going to ask that of me. So then we get busy like God's people in the book of Haggai and we're busy buying houses and paneling those houses and getting quite comfortable in this world. And we think I can be comfortable in the next world and in this world. I can have the next and this. I can have it both ways. Often we may not realize that we have gotten too attached to the things of this world until God takes those things away from us. I love that in the, the book of Hebrews, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews explains that there were Christians who went through great persecution and that part of that persecution meant that their own houses were broken into. Their own houses, because of persecution for the sake of the gospel, were plundered, it says. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. and You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How did these Christians handle going to prison for the sake of the gospel? Imagine a prison being your home. How did these believers handle having their possessions stolen, their property invaded, their property plundered? And not only handle it, but handle it gladly, it says. Well, they were able to handle it gladly because they had loosened their grip on the things of this world and embraced the pilgrim life. It says that you joyfully accepted this 
because you knew that you yourselves had a much better possession and an abiding one. Their hearts were so taken up with the home, the inheritance that they had in heaven, that when their homes and their inheritance in this world was challenged, was even taken away or destroyed, they rejoiced because they had not attached themselves too much or collect, connected themselves too closely with the possessions of this world. And it's not only those who had their possessions stolen or their property plundered that were able to rejoice as they loosened their grip on the things of this world. I love that in Acts chapter 2, the opposite happened. In Acts chapter 2, 44 to 47, God's people were together and were having all things in common. That is the early church. They were sharing. It says they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, God's people, even those that had possessions, did not see them as their own, but saw them as things to leverage for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ, and for the sake of the new covenant people of God. In Acts chapter 4, it says there was not a needy person among this early Jerusalem church. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It talks about Barnabas, one of the early disciples, the early followers of Christ, who goes with Paul on his first missionary journey. It says in Acts chapter 4 that he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, this is how God's people, how Christ's disciples view their own possessions, not as their own. And they view this world not as their own inheritance, but they hold loosely to the things of this world and they embrace the pilgrim life of Christ. This is uh, point number one, counting the cost. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to embrace this pilgrim life. Whether you have nothing, rejoice. Whether you have something, use it and leverage it, not seeing it as your own, but as God's and as his to use for the sake of his kingdom. Point number two, point number two, gospel priorities, gospel priorities, verses 59 to 60. To another, he, that is Jesus, said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus pursues a recruit. The first one was a volunteer. Here we have a recruit. Jesus calls someone out and says, you follow me. But this person responds, Lord, first, Lord, first, let me do something else. The same thing happens uh, in this third account. We have the same word, first. The person who responds to the call of Christ says that they're willing to do it, but there's something they have to do first. And Jesus senses in this but first 
that there is a issue of priority. We see here the excuse. Sounds like a good one. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Uh, it looks like there's a funeral. If I was a teacher, if I was a boss, I think I would accept this as an excusable absence. But what does Jesus do? Does he allow this as an excuse and say, I'll see you soon? No. He responds, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, when it comes to the gospel and the proclamation of the kingdom, there is a priority here that outstrips all other priorities. There is a priority here that is priority number one, and nothing else can share this priority. Now you think of this. Let me go first bury my father. It sounds like a good excuse, but it seems that behind it is just that, an excuse. It may be that the man's father had not died yet. And what he's actually saying is, let me go home and wait for my father to die and to bury him and to be faithful with fulfilling the expectations of my family. It may be, as it seems there was a tradition of not only having a funeral, but waiting a year and then having a second funeral as the bones were then laid to rest the second time. Either way, Jesus sees here an issue of priority. And what Jesus says is even family expectations must be set aside when it comes to the priority of the gospel and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. You see, it may be as we follow Christ that we must disobey even family and family expectations in order to be faithful to Christ and to his call. It may be, and it will be in some way for all of us, a reality where we will be misunderstood for our faithfulness to Christ and to the gospel. It may be that we may offend our family members because of the fact that we prioritize Christ and the gospel message, and we prioritize his kingdom, and we prioritize his church. I remember my wife walking a young girl through uh, the gospel of Mark and walking her through Christianity. She came from a Buddhist and a, a, a background of Buddhism. And as she walked through the book of Mark, this girl came to know what it is that Christ expected of her. And what she realized from passages like this one was that if she was going to follow Christ and be faithful to his call, that it was going to offend her parents, that it would mean going against her parents' religion and going against her parents' expectations for her. And do you know what she said? She said, oh, this is really hard. She was excited about the benefits of the gospel and was interested in what it is that Jesus was saying he uh, had come to do in terms of saving sinners. But her response was, I, I can't answer Christ's call now, but maybe one day, maybe when my parents are no longer in the world, I might consider Christ. You see, the cost of following Christ was going to cost her a relationship. And that cost for her was too high. 
I'm not sure what it is that is a priority for you that is vying for priority with Christ. I'm not sure what it is that is uh, competing in your own heart in terms of a priority, whether Christ or something else. It may be that there's a relationship that you need to cut off, a relationship that you need to remove from your life, a person that is leading you away from Christ, whether it's a romantic relationship or even a family relationship in which a family member is giving you expectations that lead you away from Christ. It may be a sin that is competing in your heart for, uh, for first place, a pleasure, a desire that you hold on to, that Christ is calling you to cut out and cast away. As we think about what it means to follow Christ, on the one hand, it is embracing Christ, holding on to Christ. That is the faith that Christ calls us to in, in the gospel, to believe in him as God's Messiah who has come to lay down his life for sinners like you and me, if we would, if we would put our faith in him. But the other side of that faith in Christ in terms of holding on to him is the, the sin that we turn away from. It's the repentance that we're called to that we must turn away from or to think about it, the things we must let go of. You know, in order to hold on Christ with both hands, in order to hold on to him in faith and in reliance, there is sin that we must let go of. There are things in this world that we must release. And I'm not sure what it is that is competing in your heart in terms of a priority that is getting in the way of you prioritizing Christ and prioritizing his gospel and his kingdom. But whatever that is, let me encourage you, friend, it will not be worth it to hold on to it. Christ demands that we have a kingdom priority, a gospel priority, and a Christ priority. Let me encourage you to make Christ first in your heart. It's point number two gospel priorities. Point number three, wholehearted commitment. Point number three, wholehearted commitment. Be looking at verses 61 and 62. Yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here, a, a third person. This time, another volunteer says, Jesus, I will follow you. But first, but first, let me say farewell to those at my home. We have another but first. We have another issue of priority in the heart. That but first is highlighting an issue of priority. Now, what's interesting about this one is it looks like this would-be disciple is thinking about 1 Kings 19. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah, who had just shown up here in Luke chapter 9 at the transfiguration, he had shown up as some people thought that Jesus was Elijah, come back from the dead, and people were confused about who Jesus was. Well, then Elijah shows up at the transfiguration with Moses, basking in Jesus' glory as Jesus is transfigured and unveiled before his disciples, shown to be God himself in human flesh. 
veiled in his humanity and in that moment of transfiguration unveiled in glory for his disciples to see. Well, it looks like a would-be disciple sees Jesus as Elijah and is willing to see himself as Elisha. Because in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah put his mantle on Elisha, Elisha said, I will follow you. That is, be a prophet. But first, let me say farewell to my family. And when this mantle was thrown over Elisha, Elisha was plowing in the field with his oxen. Jesus picks up on this reference that this man is making of saying, I'm willing to be a prophet. I'm willing to follow you, Elijah. But let me first, like Elisha did, say farewell to my family. Let me go home, have a feast like Elisha did, and have a tearful goodbye. Jesus makes it clear he is not a prophet like Elijah. He is so much more. And the demands of Christ are even higher than the demands of Elijah on Elisha. He is not simply a prophet. Christ is God himself. And the demands of Christ are higher even than the demands of a prophet. Because he will demand all of us. He will demand that we give of ourselves all for him and for his glory. This sounds harsh, but Jesus is saying what is required of disciples is a wholehearted commitment. We are not able to be divided, holding on to the things of this world, the people of this world, or divided even in our work. We must be committed to Christ. We must be all in. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This reminds us of Lot and his wife. As God was destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, you must run and not look back. And Lot's wife turned and looked back. She was torn between this world and God and his kingdom. And what Jesus says is those that look back, who put their hand to the plow and then are torn in two minds, they are not fit for the kingdom of God. Do you think about your fitness or suitability for the kingdom of God? I recently watched a video that showed the, the, the fitness tests for the FBI. There's similar tests for joining the military or a police force. These tests that a person must go through to prove that they are suitable, that they are fit for this job, for being an FBI agent, for being a, a military or policeman. And what Jesus says here is, do you want to know your fitness or your suitability for being a member of Christ's kingdom? Well, you must have a wholehearted commitment to Christ. You must be wholehearted in your commitment to Christ. You are not able to be torn between this world or even the people of this world as you commit yourself to Christ. He demands an undivided heart. Now, as we think about these three things that Christ demands, that Christ demands of the world, we see that he is a demanding Christ, a demanding Messiah. But let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, he is not sending us out where he has not led first. Christ is not sending us somewhere that he has not first 
led and blazed a trail for us to follow. Yes, he calls us to a pilgrim life, but he himself was a pilgrim. He calls us to a pilgrim life, but while he was homeless in this world, he went to the cross to prepare a place for us. Jesus purchased for us an eternal home for his people, eternal dwelling places in the very presence of God. And while we may follow him on this pilgrim journey in this life, loosening our grip on the things of this world, we journey to an eternal home that no one can take from us. Yes, Jesus calls us to prioritize himself and his kingdom and the gospel over every other earthly priority, but he did this first. He, in his single-minded focus on Jerusalem and the cross and saving sinners like you and me, he was misunderstood by his own family. He was rejected by his own brothers and sisters who thought he was crazy. He was misunderstood and rejected and in the end killed by his enemy. And while he calls us to follow him to a life of rejection by some of the family and friends of this world, he offers us acceptance. He offers us eternal and complete acceptance by our God, an eternal relationship that no one can take away with our eternal God. And though he calls us to a wholehearted commitment to him, total allegiance to him with no wavering, while it seems extreme, he himself was single-minded and wholehearted as he went to Jerusalem and to the cross. He himself committed himself to us, his people, with an eternal covenant love. He embraces us with his everlasting arms, and he promises us a forever love. Do you sense that this wholehearted discipleship is something that you do not have the ability to keep? that you're not able to achieve this on your own. Well, good, because that's the point. Jesus does this for us. The wonder of the gospel message is that Christ himself came to do what we could never do. The, the wonderful news of the gospel is that Christ came to earth because we were needy and helpless and weak and dead, that we were completely separated from our creator God in need of salvation. And Christ came to bridge this gap between us and God. He came to unite us back to God. He came in strength to save sinners like you and me. And he laid down his life as a sacrifice so that he could pay the penalty that our sins deserved. Jesus was raised from the dead with power from on high. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father in strength and power, and he, he ministers that strength and power to us through the Holy Spirit so that those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ are able now to live a faithful life before him and are able to follow where he commands and are able to be faithful where he demands us to be wholehearted. Jesus tells us, to those who are hurting and to those who are weak. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and learn from me. He promises to bear the burden for us, to lift it for us. 
We think of a yoke and we think of oxen and we think of the yoke that connected two strong animals together. For those who are hurting and weak and who feel unable to be faithful, Jesus gives us a yoke which sounds heavy and sounds like a burden. But what Jesus is actually doing is he's saying, take my yoke upon you and I will be strong where you are weak and I will carry you and I will be strong enough for the both of us. Jesus helps, Jesus gives the strength for us to be faithful where we could not on our own. And where Jesus gives us demands and commands, he helps us by his spirit to fulfill them. As you think about the cost of following Christ, as you think about Christ who is demanding, I want you to turn quickly with me as we conclude to Mark chapter 10. Here we have in Luke chapter 9, Jesus demands. But in another similar passage, Jesus, side by side with the demands, holds out for his disciples the rewards that obeying such demands brings. In Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. You remember the story. This man runs up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a list of laws. In other words, if you think you can obey all these things, then you can have eternal life. And the man thinks that he can do it. He thinks that he has done it. He's clearly deceived. Jesus tells him one thing you lack. What does he lack? Well, he has a materialistic heart and he was very rich. And Jesus tells him, go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And disheartened by this demand, because he was too attached to the things of this world, this man goes away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus then tells his disciples that it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom. They're too tied up with the things of this world. And the disciples are shocked, but then encouraged. And Peter says to him in Mark 10, 28, Look, Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And what does Jesus say? Verse 29 and following. Truly I say to you, you, Peter, who've left everything behind to follow me, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What is Jesus saying in Mark 10? Yes, I have high demands. Yes, you must leave everything behind if I ask it of you to follow me. Yes, you must loosen your grip on the things of this world to follow me. But you are going to get back something so much more that as you give those things up, as you loosen your grip on the things of this world that could never satisfy, you find that there is so much more in store for you in your relationship with God and in your relationship with God's people in the church. And ultimately, even through persecutions, the joy that awaits us in heaven. For there is an eternal joy, an eternal home and eternal rewards that is awaiting God's faithful people, Christ's faithful and wholehearted disciples. But as we follow his demands, we realize that the things we gave up were nothing. 
As Paul says, he counted those things rubbish or garbage in comparison with the things that he gained in having Christ and Christ's kingdom. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you loosen your grip on the things of this world and you are faithful to Christ's commands and demands, whatever relationship or sin or whatever thing of this world you're asked to leave behind, let me encourage you, there is so much more and so much better waiting for you in the days ahead. Trust him for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that while Christ is a demanding Christ, a demanding Messiah for those who count the cost, for those who embrace gospel priorities and who come to him with a wholehearted commitment that there is joy and reward awaiting in abundance. We pray that you would help us to conduct ourselves in this world as pilgrims and as strangers following our pilgrim savior. And that as we do this, that we would see you at work in us as the gospel bears fruit and increases. And as we grow in our joy in you and in your kingdom, and that we would be able to be a witness to those around us as they see the joy and the love that we have that is unlike anything that this world offers. We pray that you would do these things for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.